I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Welcome to this week's episode. Just another reminder that the Whitehall, New York Sasquatch Festival is happening next week on September 30th. I believe it runs from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. There are a ton of vendors, I think over a hundred, lots of great speakers, a costume contest, and a Sasquatch calling contest. If you have the weekend free, I highly recommend it for a weekend trip. If you're from the area, I hope you make it out. Stop by and say hello. I love meeting listeners and talking shop. For this week's episode, we're headed to the shores of Lake Erie to a small area just outside of Erie, Pennsylvania called Presque Isle State Park. Presque Isle State Park is a 3,200-acre sandy peninsula that arches into Lake Erie. It's Pennsylvania's only seashore, so to speak. There are plenty of activities to do there, including swimming, boating, fishing, hiking, biking, and inline skating. Do people actually still inline skate? Is it making a comeback? Anyway, the peninsula is attached to the mainland just four miles west of the city of Erie. It creates the Presque Isle Bay, which is a deep water port that makes Erie an important Great Lakes shipping port. The area is also a national natural landmark. It was used by Native Americans and in the 18th and 19th centuries, it housed British, French, and American forts. The name Presque Isle means almost an island in French, which uh, basically that's what peninsula means. Presque Isle has two lighthouses, one dating back to the 1870s that still serves as a navigational beacon and one called the North Pier Light because it is located on the North Pier. So our story today begins on Sunday, specifically July 31st, 1966. Six people from Jamestown, New York, decided to head to Presque Isle to get a break from the heat and humidity of the summer. They were at Popular Beach 6 on the northern edge of the park. The group included 16-year-old Betty Jean Clem, Douglas J. Tibbetts, 18, Gerald LaBelle, 26, Mrs. Anita Hafley, 20, and her two children, Sandra, 2, and Sarah, 6 months. While there, the car got stuck in the sand at the east end of the beach parking lot. The men could not get it unstuck no matter how hard they tried. Others, who were leaving the park, offered to drive Mr. LaBelle to town so he could get a tow truck to free the vehicle. Within a few minutes of LaBelle leaving, park police officers Ralph Clark and Robert Loeb Jr. drove by the beach and noticed the stuck car. They stopped and promised that they would return to give assistance if Mr. LaBelle was unable to get anyone else to help him by the time that the police returned. Around 9.30 p.m., things got interesting. Betty Clem stated, We were sitting in the car waiting for help. We saw a star move. It got brighter. 
It would move fast, then dim. It came straight down. The car vibrated. I know we saw it. We had taken a walk in that area earlier. There was nothing between those trees then. All of a sudden, it was just there. The object was mushroom-shaped, with a narrow base rising to an oval-shaped structure. There were lights on the back of the object. The UFO approached from the north and hovered briefly before landing. Ms. Clem said a beam of light came from the craft and moved along the sand in a straight line as the craft disappeared behind the tree line. She said it lit up the whole woods in the path. It wasn't like a searchlight. There was a light along the ground along the whole path. She continued to say that the light didn't waver and continued to extend into the woods. Where the object landed was approximately 300 yards from where the car was parked. At this time, the two park officers returned to assist with the car. The light from the object immediately went out when the officers arrived. When the officers approached the car, they were told about the strange craft that had landed in the woods. Mr. Tibbetts offered to show them the general area where he thought it might have touched down. The two officers followed Mr. Tibbetts, leaving the two women and the children alone in the car. Remember, Mr. LaBelle left to go seek a tow truck to pull them out of the sand. Moments after the men left, Betty Clem, who was sitting in the driver's seat, saw something emerge from the woods near where the men had just entered. At first she thought it was an animal, until she saw the shape and size. It was a form, about six feet tall, humanoid-looking and featureless. Its head and arms were distinguishable, but not the legs and feet. The creature began moving towards the car. Though not in the original report, the women told Mr. LaBelle later that the creature circled the car from a distance, then came close and clawed at the car. Screaming in terror, Betty Clem began blowing the horn frantically. The thing slowly moved back into the brush, then the craft rose and took off with a great speed to the north, just mere minutes before Tibbetts and the two officers came running. Mr. LaBelle was told that one of the officers actually dropped his service pistol in the sand, and he left it there instead of taking the time to pick it up so that he could get to the women as fast as possible. When the men returned to the car, the women were in a state of panic, and it took a while to calm them. It was later reported that Betty Clem had to be treated for shock. Mrs. Hafley was so upset she refused to talk about it. Ms. Clem refused to talk until she was taken to a different location, so they drove them to the park ranger office. Before leaving the scene, the officers noticed scratch marks on the car that all four adults insisted were not there before. More heavily armed police arrived to assist and refused to allow the group back to their car to get their things until the morning. By 7 a.m. August 1st, the state police and Air Force were involved. Officers Paul Wilson and Robert Canfield investigated and found unusual impressions in the sand. About 300 to 400 yards from the car were two diamond-shaped imprints, 18 inches wide and 6 to 8 inches deep. They were 10 to 12 feet apart. Another area had three impressions in a triangle pattern about 11 feet apart. Officer Wilson found tracks that led in a straight line to the car. They were conical shaped, 8 inches wide and 5 to 7 inches deep, and 5 to 8 feet apart. 
Wilson did not believe they were footprints. He said it seemed to be made by a heavy object or objects. Air Force investigators interviewed Betty Clem in the morning. She was also interviewed by a psychiatrist who said she was telling the truth and was not delusional or ill. So that is the basic story of what happened. The case was investigated by Air Force's Project Blue Book. We're going to look at some information contained in some of their files that have some more details from the witnesses. In a report dated 3rd August 1966, there was a description of the craft. It was square or hexagonal, in the air, tumbling. The size was compared to a half dollar, just before touchdown, or a little bigger. The edges were either lit up or reflecting. There was a circle of spotlights at the top when it was on the ground. A soft hum or buzz was heard for about three seconds that was later described as groan or turbine sound decreasing speed and pitch. The sound stopped abruptly when it settled on the sand. In reference to Betty Clem, Police Chief Dan DeSonio said of Betty Clem, she could not put on this act. That would be absolutely impossible. She was hysterical. Buell Planetarium in Pittsburgh was called, and they ruled out meteorites because they never last for 10 minutes. Satellites were also ruled out because they, and meteors, never change direction. Weather balloons were also ruled out. I want to share some of the written statements the witnesses gave that are part of the Air Force investigation file. This first one is from Mr. LaBelle, and um, it's a little bit of a struggle to read because it is in his handwriting. It's a photocopy of his handwritten statement in cursive. I can read cursive, but it's in somebody's sloppy handwriting, and the spelling isn't great, so bear with me. Arrived at 8 p.m. to have a picnic. We went to Beach 6 because I had already had been there and remembered a picnic area the last time I was there. I, Gerald LaBelle, was driving the car. I decided to pull off the parking lot onto the beach area. I stopped the car and everyone got out of the car. Somebody and I got everything out of the car up to the tables to start the food. I set up the barbecue and also started the fire. It was getting dusk by now and the light was shortly fading. The hot dogs were cooked and passed around. Everyone except, it's redacted, had the usual. Hot dog, potato salad, macaroni salad, Kool-Aid. And I was ready to go swimming. So we got in the car. We were going to the bathhouse to change to our swimming trunks. Redacted started the car and tried to back out and found out they were stuck. Some people next to our table came over to help us out. All of our efforts were not good enough. I said I know a friend of mine in Erie that would help us out. The people using the next table down offered to give me a ride to where I wanted to go. We left about 9.20 p.m. Due to being a stranger to Erie, I didn't know the area too well. I had a hard time finding the street and house that I wanted. I found a friend about 10 after 10, 
who was willing to try to help us out. After a few tries to get something to help pull the car out, my friend got his brother-in-law to let us use his chains. We drove back to the picnic area. We got back to where the two lanes by the barricade. We were stopped by a policeman. I got out of the car and talked to the man. He said there was some trouble on Beach 6 and it involved some people from Jamestown. This really scared me. I got back to the police station to find some really scared girls. Betty was still crying. Anita wasn't crying, but she broke down when I came in. The girls were questioned for a length of time. This one is from Anita, the married woman who had two daughters. I don't know who she was married to. On July 31st, 1966, my two daughters and I went to the peninsula for a picnic. About 8 p.m. we got to Beach 6. When we, we got ready to leave, we discovered that we were stuck in the sand. At 9.30, Jerry LaBelle left to get help. I got into the car to put the girls to sleep. The police came at 9.45 or 10 and told us to stay in the car and they would be back in 45 minutes. Soon after they left, somebody pointed out this object in the sky. I was in the back seat and couldn't see it. When I leaned forward, I saw this silvery object. I thought it was just a satellite and sat back down. Then we heard this sound similar to jet motor shutting down. I was watching out the back window for Jerry and did not see it land. I heard somebody gasp at the same time I felt the car vibrate. I turned around and said that it had landed. I looked towards the woods and saw the glow. I then saw this light beam coming out from where they said it had landed. I watched the light for a couple minutes and then started looking for Jerry again. I heard some sounds like something in the woods. When the police came back, the beam of light disappeared. Tibbets got out of the car and told the police what was happening. The two policemen and Tibbets went down towards where the object had landed. I thought that I heard a car and looked out the back window again. I started to turn around and say something to Betty. Just then she said, she said to close my eyes, it's coming. I looked past her towards the woods. I saw this black thing coming out of the woods at us. It was about seven and a half to eight feet tall. Betty started blowing the horn. The baby woke up and I took care of her. Betty stopped blowing the horn and started crying. I told her to continue blowing the horn until the men came back. This creature came to about six or seven yards of the car when I last looked at it. I saw the flashlights and the men and told Betty she stopped blowing the horn and started crying. She told the police what we had seen and they took us to the station. The car was parked parallel to the lake headed towards an out branch of the woods. The parking area was behind the car. I couldn't see any facial features, arms or legs, 
on the creature. I don't know whether it walked or glided. It was black. Next, I have some of the conclusions from the Air Force investigation. Conclusions. According to the investigating United States Air Force officer, the sand was definitely compressed under load and not excavated as might have been done by a child playing on the beach. Assuming that the depressions were made by an applied load and based on inspection of the soil sample and the plaster of Paris casting provided, the estimated weight that caused the two larger depressions was 750 to 1,000 pounds. Since no information was given regarding the size and depth of the smaller third depression, no estimate regarding the weight that may have rested on it can be given. According to Mr. Max Groff, Base Civil Engineering, the outrigger stabilizing pads of certain large construction equipment could leave in an inverted three-sided pyramid footprint shape similar to the ones found on Presque Isle. However, no vehicle tracks were observed in the vicinity of the footprint, which effectively eliminates this potential explanation. The layout of the three footprints allowed no semblance of symmetry. If the third, smaller footprint is discounted, lines extended through the apex and bisecting each of the two larger triangular footprints do not converge in a symmetrical manner. This information, obtained from study of the photograph, which shows both larger footprints, is contrary to the orientations shown on the sketch made by the United States Air Force investigating officer. Based on the number of depressions and their orientation, it is not likely that they served as ground-stabilizing contact elements for any kind of platform or vehicle. A minimum of three points is necessary to provide stable support of any object, and some form of symmetry in their locations is basically logical. You know, unless it's an alien aircraft that doesn't need three stabilizing points, but hey, who am I to make that conclusion? So they did test some of the, they took a sample of sand and they basically said no evidence exists to relate the damp areas and the indentations found on the beach to the sighting. Considering the indentations, the following comments are presented. No object could have made a stable landing without at least a third appendage. Sand should have been a lot more compressed for alleged landing though it was compressed enough to say it was something 750 to 1,000 pounds. Go figure. No ground maneuver capability apparent. That's because it's a flying saucer. Portions of ground indentation appear to have been uncovered, not totally compressed, as should have been. No definite sign of vehicle departing area in the sand. No evidence of heat blast or sand being disturbed by aerodynamic vehicles. Rough weight calculations place weight of alleged object at approximately 1,500 pounds total weight, this being a static load estimate calculated anticipating a two-legged object. Acrylic resin was present in the large sample taken around the indentation, this was attributed to the acrylic lacquer which was sprayed on the indentations prior to casting the mold. Urine was distinctly present in the soil samples. Both Major Hall and Mr. Parmenter, Erie County Civil Defense, checked for evidence of radioactivity. In both cases, negative results were obtained.
Worthy of note is the fact that as objects settled to the ground, the car vibrated. An object slowly descending onto a sandy area isn't likely to cause any vibration of a car approximately 300 to 400 yards in the distance, especially since the depth of the indentations were only 4 to 5 inches in the loose sand. Various discrepancies are noted throughout the available information. These discrepancies are prevalent in the description of the alleged UFO and in the actual sequence of events as they occurred. Considering these discrepancies, it is difficult to give any credence to the sighting. So, John Keel, who was a New York writer, also looked into what went on at Presque Isle. You may recognize the name as he is the man who wrote the book The Mothman Prophecies. In Keel's report, it was noted that Betty Clem was pretty hysterical. She tried to run away from the scene in terror after seeing the creature. At the park ranger station, she refused to sit with her back to the window, and her hair was plastered to her head from sweat. Keel's report had the following information about the investigation. And I'm going to read from that. At 7 a.m. on the next morning, Patrolman Paul Wilson and J. Robert Canfield visited the alleged landing site and discovered a series of markings in the sand. They found two triangular indentations about 18 inches long and sloping downwards to a depth of 8 inches. These prints were very distinct. Several feet away, they found three more identical impressions. Two skid marks were also found in this pattern. They also discovered a series of imprints, conical-shaped as if someone had pressed a pointed drinking cup into the sand. These were 9 inches in diameter and 6 inches deep. They led from the landing site to about 12 feet from where the car was stuck. In addition, they also found three spots of wet sand. The liquid was colorless, odorless, and sticky to the touch. All of the officers pointed out to Mr. Keel that most liquids, such as water, Coca-Cola, coffee, urine, etc., quickly evaporate on the beach. These wet spots persisted for a day. Samples of this substance were collected in plastic bottles. In Mr. Keel's report, he noted that one officer collected some of this wet sand and had it analyzed on his own, he told me. When dried, he said this substance formed a colorless material which could be bent without breaking, like plastic. The analysis was performed by a relative, who is a chemist, he said, and showed them the material was silicon. Major William S. Hall of the Youngstown Air Force Base investigated for the Air Force, photographed the marks, had a corporal make plaster casts, etc. He took possession of the bottles of wet sand and all the photographs, the latter of which were returned to Canfield later. Chief Desanio told Mr. Keel that the Air Force investigators seemed to know just what to do. A NICAP subcommittee group from Buffalo, New York arrived, interviewed witnesses, posed for photographers, etc. The Air Force's final statement on the case declared that raccoons and bears were known to be in the woods in that area. The police officers involved were all impressed by the genuine fright of Ms. Clem. As Mr. Keel wrote, they all believe the story to be true. These officers are bright, mature, responsible men. Two of them are school teachers. Also, in view of the fact that park officials state there are definitely no bears, 
on the peninsula where the park is located, the Air Force's remarks about bears cannot be taken seriously. Raccoons do not appear to be over six feet tall. In consideration of this case, certain similarities to other cases must, must be studied. Note the similarity between the described movement of the robot which went over or through bushes rather than around in the Mr. X case. I'm not familiar with that one, but honestly, the robot-like description and the lack of legs and the gliding and the scratches made me think of the Braxton monster or the Flatwoods monster. The sequence of events suggests that some kind of machine landed on that beach at about 10 or 10.15 p.m. and took off again as the police car approached, red light revolving. If the animal or monster seen by Miss Clem was connected in any way with the landed object, and it certainly seems that it was, then some relationship can be presumed between the creature and the strange cone-shaped depressions leading from the area of the car to the area where the object landed. These suggest some type of air jet propulsion issuing from the monster which propelled it along. So I agree with Mr. Keel. I have not seen any six foot tall raccoons lately or ever other than the movie theater. Um, not a fan of raccoons, so a six foot tall one would be terrifying because, you know, they rip the heads off of chickens just for fun. But to continue with this sighting. That same night, a gentleman by the name of Peter Fisher, 25, who was in the park at the same time, reported seeing an irregular shaped object directly overhead sometime in the late evening. It appeared to be a green light with a yellow light at one end. Steve Loopy was on beach too with friends, and he, along with three others he was with, saw an object hovering near the peninsula around 8.30 p.m. French foreign exchange students Helena Roche and Alan Orsell were living at 412 Frontier Drive, about a mile away from the beaches at Presque Isle, and they saw a lighted silvery object flying low. Stephanie Mango on Homeland Avenue saw it flying silently at treetop level. It was round and the color was undistinguishable. The object moved towards the beach, then changed course and moved towards Erie's Bay Area, where it disappeared from her view. Sue Carey, Linda Henderson, and Janice Dickey were camping out in the yard at Sue Carey's house, and around 11 p.m. they saw a silvery object flying south to north. Sue Carey said, I heard a whistling sound and looked up and saw an object moving north as high as the Boston store, which is 138 feet. It was very low, and we all ran and got in the station wagon and locked the doors when we saw it. Other incidents followed. Two police officers in the suburbs of East Erie reported seeing a bright light on August 4th between 4.15 and 6.55 a.m. One of the officers said the object turned red, then disappeared, and reappeared, then turned bluish. An unexpected bright object was reported moving across the sky at 2.30 a.m. and was seen by eight people on a beach near Erie. They watched it for 10 minutes, and the object changed direction several times. There were also two radio newsmen who saw something strange. Jerry Tremblay and Dennis Buckle witnessed an object in the sky. 
Dennis Buckle saw it first, and then two hours later, Jerry Tremblay saw something. He said, One had the appearance of a bright star, but moved rapidly. The second object had only red and green and white lights, but did not act like an ordinary plane. So what the heck happened on Presque Isle? The Air Force discounted everything, which is pretty much par for the course with them in these situations. They later made comments and conclusions that alluded to Tibbetts, LaBelle, and Clem being in on this huge hoax, and none of it was true. It was just some story for attention. I personally do not believe that. There were numerous mentions of Betty Clem's hysterical state, and that, coupled with the psychiatrist's professional opinion that she was truthful, and the knowledge that she had to be treated for hysteria, makes me think she definitely saw something. Plus, there were also numerous reports from other people that same night, and then few nights later. All of those people couldn't be in on a hoax. I do want to mention that there were some reports that claimed the creature Betty Clem saw was gorilla-like or Bigfoot-like. Nowhere in any of the actual news articles or government documents or in John Keel's recounting did it say anything about any distinct features of the creature. Any details like that are being added to those reports, either from bad research or embellishment. So did a UFO land? Did an alien creature approach the women in the car? That's going to do it for this episode. You can find Lurk wherever it is that you listen to your other favorite podcasts or at lurkpodcast.com where you'll find episodes along with links to the social media pages. If you have a topic suggestion, send it to me via email at lurkpodcast at yahoo.com or through social media messages. Hope to see you in Whitehall, New York on the 30th. And until next time, keep lurking.